Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Ribbonis. Happy to be back and to have you here with me again. So pleased to have as my guest today, Catherine McMaster. Her latest book, Who Killed Little Johnny Gill, shot to the top of the Amazon bestseller charts in the UK in its first week in release. A spellbinding historical mystery. And I'm, I'm so appreciative of you taking time out to talk with me today. Many thanks for the opportunity, Eric. It's great to be here. So you wrote somewhere that you got your idea for this book from looking at Wikipedia. Is that correct? (laughs) Actually, yes, it is. I I suppose that's not the normal way authors go about finding ideas for their books. Um, But I write a different genre um, to most people. I, I write what people may call fact fiction or perhaps realistic fiction. Um, That is, I take true stories, in this case, murder stories, research them, Um, add the meat to the bones and flesh it out to a novel that I hope will be of interest to others. Um, I wanted a story that was an unsolved murder. I I think secretly because I wanted to examine all the evidence and come up up with the killer, I suppose, solves a crime. Um, I have a forensic background and um, this appeals to me. Um, I, I, I think really I was looking for a cold case that Um, perhaps from uh, pre-modern forensic science days that I I could research and come up with a better understanding of the crime and how it took place during the day. And and so I I did look in Wikipedia um, and I found the story of Little Johnny Girl, which I found absolutely riveting. Um, More surprisingly was the fact that after I had done further research, um, nobody had actually written a standalone uh, book about it. Um, and this was really quite a surprise to find because it's, it was a very well-known crime. 
Um, it was a, a crime that was extremely um, well publicized in the newspapers of the day. Um, and although it appeared in a, com a compendium of true stories um, during Victorian Britain, the story itself had not been covered by an author. And so I thought, okay, this is the book for me. I need to start writing this and tackling this murder. Right. So let's get into the story. Your book begins with the Gill family in 1888 Bradford, which is a town near London. What kind of a town was Bradford like in 1888, and what was family life like for the Gills? I think for most people who were living in Bradford, it was a difficult town to live in because it was heavily polluted. Um, you have to remember that Bradford was a, it was a mill town. Um, chimney stacks dotted the skyline everywhere you looked, and constantly there was spewing forth of the smoke and pollutants into the air. So people, you know, found work in these malls, um, but for many the work was, was dangerous, um, especially for children who worked there. Um, this was an era of, of the Industrial Revolution. Machinery was in full swing and there was nothing like health and safety in place. So you have cotton particles and wool particles flying around the room where people worked. Um, many of them dying early deaths from lung problems. Um, many maimed in, by, by the machinery that they were using. Uh, in general, I think Radford during that time was, was very poor for most people. It was a hard life. Um, but of course, it was also the town of the haves and the have-nots because the people who owned the malls were extremely wealthy. Um, you also had an influx of German immigrants at the time who were textile managers who came over. So there was a definite split between the two classes, you know, the, the rich and the poor. And, and the Gill family were, unfortunately, they were part of the poor. Um, we know that 12-year-old Ruth Gill worked in a local mill before going to school every day. Um, her father did not have a particularly well-paid um, job. He was just a cab driver. Um, so he would have received a very nominal wage for the work he did. Um, we don't hear much about Mary Gill's occupation, the mother. Um, I'm presuming that her sole role was to look after the house and, and, her, and be a mother. Um, they were very poor. But despite being poor, I think they were very... Um, hard-working people, and the family was extremely close. They were also very religious, attending Sunday school and sending the kids to Sunday school and attending church service. So, um, yeah, a, a decent family. They, they were, you know, the salt of the earth kind of family. So let's talk about Johnny Gill. How old was he? What did he look like? And what kind of a boy was he? Um, Johnny was seven going on eight. He was the apple of his parents' eye, basically, um, despite the fact that he was um, one of four children. But he was the eldest son. Um, two girls had been born before that. And his parents really just doted upon him. Um, we don't know too much of what he looked like, but I imagine him to be a skinny young lad, sort of losing his milk teeth at that age, perhaps a front tooth missing. We do know that he had fair complexion, and we know that from the advertisement that was placed by the parents in the newspaper the day he went missing. 
Um, it's interesting, however, that the parents appear so distraught that when the advert was written, um, they seemed to have focused more on what he was wearing than what he actually looked like. Um, so we don't know too much about him other than the fact that he was fair complexioned. Um, but we do know a little bit about his personality. Um, he was well-mannered, sociable, very well-liked. Um, we know that because at the funeral, his Sunday school teachers spoke very highly of him. And looking at the number of his peers who saved their hard-earned pennies to buy him a wreath, really spent money that they didn't have. Um, it was a, it appears that he really was well-liked as a, as a child and as a friend. One of the neighborhood children's favorite things to do was to tag along with the milkman, a man named Willie Barrett, as he made his deliveries. Talk about the, the morning of December 27, 1888, if you would. Willie Barrett had over a number of days prior allowed Johnny to go on his route with him. And Johnny was was pretty excited about it, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Um, It was just after Christmas, so he didn't have to go to school. Uh, He enjoyed going with Barrett in in the horse-drawn cart for a few hours and chatting to customers and hopping on and hopping off, uh, delivering the milk. Um, All the kids wanted to go with Barrett. I think it's a normal childlike thing to want to do. Um, Barrett actually took many kids on his journeys, on his rounds. Um, But because the Barretts and the Gills lived so close by, literally five minutes away from one another, um, Johnny was the one that he took with him more than than most of the other children in the neighborhood. So Johnny left with him that morning, and it seemed routine, nothing out of the ordinary for the family. Mrs. Gill, Johnny's mother, expected her son home at 11 a.m. that morning. But the time soon came and went, and Johnny didn't appear. Then 11.30 passed, and she started getting quite concerned, didn't she? Yeah, she was most concerned. Um, Because they were very poor money-wise, it didn't make her a neglectful mother. In fact, um, her children were not allowed to wander the streets. She was quite strict with the kids. Um, They had to be home at certain times, and she kept a very close eye on them. So when they didn't, when uh, Johnny didn't come home, as he always did at 11 o'clock, it wasn't long before she did start to fret and to become concerned. So what did Mrs. Gill do? Where did she look for her son? Absolutely everywhere. Uh, Everywhere she could possibly think of. She started with the friends and the neighbors. She went down to Barrett's house to ask his wife if he was there because sometimes Johnny would go there. She had a young baby. Um, She tried to see Barrett at the the dairy where he worked. Um, The first time she sent her two girls to go and ask and inquire as to whether Johnny was up at the dairy. Perhaps he had stayed late to help Barrett with cleaning out the milk cans, but they came back and said neither Johnny nor Barrett were there. So she was really quite frantic because four hours had passed before Barrett finally knocked on the door and asked if Johnny had come home. Um, But then that was the only thing he did ask. He didn't offer up any information other than saying, well, you know, he had 
asked to go home at eight o'clock to have some breakfast. And the last time he saw them was skating on some ice and larking around with some boys on the sidewalk. Um, and so then she became exceedingly concerned because now she realized that it hadn't been just since 11 o'clock that he had been missing, but a lot longer than that. Right. And again, Barrett explained to her that Johnny had only stayed with him past his first milk stop. And then he'd just run off to play. And that was odd for Mrs. Gill because it, it didn't sound like her son. It didn't sound like him at all. And it was odd. And she was immediately concerned. But, you know, the, she was so distraught that at the time she really wasn't able to think straight. But she had a friend with her, a, a neighbor, um, who was helping her look for Johnny. And um, it was while she was talking things through with her that she suddenly sort of, it was like clarity of vision. She was saying, you know, this is not right. This doesn't make any sense. And so it was then that she decided to go up and question Barrett um, about Johnny and trying to find out more information from him. Um, but he just wouldn't give any information to her. He didn't appear concerned. He didn't offer any sympathy for her concern. And really, his behavior was very odd from the start. What did Willie Barrett look like? Uh, what was his approximate age? Could you give us a little information about him? Yes, he, he was young. Um, he was in his mid-20s. Um, he was newly married. He had a young baby. Um, he had come from farming stock. Um, he had been a farm laborer. So he was a, he was a young, strapping, uh, fresh-faced young man who had worked for Wolfenden, who would now own the dairy um, as a farm laborer beforehand, and had, in fact, made an impression on Wolfenden so much so that he decided that he would actually employ Barrett. Um, there was nothing about Barrett's demeanor or his past that would indicate that there was anything suspicious about him going off with young children or whatever, um, except when you hear stories of that he paid the children pennies for certain things, uh, you do have to wonder. He was also um, a, a Sunday school teacher. He had access to children. Whether Barrett was a pedophile or whether Barrett just liked to be around children, I haven't ever the slightest idea. And I certainly wouldn't like to cast dispersions, you know, against a man whom I, I haven't met and, and and wouldn't like to go that far down the track. But you have to read the book and you have to see the full story and draw your own conclusions. There were a lot of odd things about the whole situation, including Barrett and the way he manipulated people and the way he seemed to put on a certain face for different people. Wolfenden saw him as a man of sobriety. Willie, um, young Johnny Gill would spread the tale around the neighborhood that he was drunk on duty several times. So who do you believe? Right, exactly. So Mrs. Gill 
She's pretty frantic at this point, as well as her husband. They spend the night in a panic. Then your story jumps to the evening of the next day, to a place called Berwick Stables, I believe. A number of witnesses notice something strange. Police Constable Arthur Kirk, a draper named Benjamin Abbott, a butcher named Richard Manuel, and a servant named Eliza Jane Kendall. Can you talk a little about what each of them witnessed that night? Yes, they're two, they're two stables, and so and the stables themselves are actually not that far apart. Berwick Stables is actually um, the stable that was the, was the final resting place of, of where the body was dropped. Um, the Wolfenden Stables is what you're referring to, is where um, a number of people saw very odd things happen over the last two days. Now, bearing in mind that Johnny Gill disappeared on a Thursday um, and then the, and it wasn't discovered until Saturday morning at 7 o'clock. And on the Thursday night and the Friday night, there seemed to be a lot of odd activity, unusual activity taking place in this particular stable. Now, this was the stable that Barrett had access to. This was the stable where his horse was stabled that belonged to the dairy and which was the one that was used to carry the cart. Um, It's also interesting that a week before the murder, the key to the stable suddenly disappears. It is not until the police do a thorough investigation that they find that the key had been broken in the lock. So one could argue that anybody had access to the stable. However, during this night, over the last two nights, and particularly this particular night on the Friday, um, Bradford has this Bobby beat system where they go out and they patrol, and Arthur Kirk was one of those policemen. And so his routine is always the same, and he has doors to check for Um, intruders or whatever to see if they're secure. And each time he checks these buildings, he notes in his little book that he carries around with him uh, the time he visits and what he has found. Um, It's interesting, too, that his his beat is, is really quite precise. He visits these places almost on the hour. If it's not on the hour, it's on every second hour. And he walks at a at such a pace that you can almost predict as to what time he will be at his next destination. Now, if you've been casing out the joint, you would know exactly when that policeman's going to be coming by. And so you would hunker down if you were um, not doing the right thing and then wait for him to pass and then resume your, your, your activity. And I think basically whoever was in the stable was doing just that because when he came to the sta- to the to the stables, um, both and funny enough, he he looked in on the stables at Berwick, um, as well as Wolfenden stables and and back Bellevue. Uh, and when he came to Wolfenden stable, he checked into this building at ten ten, and then eleven ten, etc., right up until five ten. 
And each time he found that particular stable locked. Now, remember, this is the stable that doesn't have a key. So that's odd in itself. Um, it shouldn't have been locked. It should have been open, but it wasn't. So who was on the other side of the door barring the stable? Who was preventing the policeman from being able to come into the stable and why? Um, Benjamin Abbott was working late in his drapery shop on that Friday night, and he closes his shop at about 10.30, and about 15 minutes later, he walks past Wolfenden Stables, and he notices a light coming up out of the top window of the stable. The door is closed, but it's clear that there is a light burning inside. Now, there is no electricity inside the building, so... A light cannot then be left on by someone inadvertently. So the only light source would have been from somebody who actually brought that into the barn. Then Richard Manuel, he leaves a pool game late that Friday night. And about 11.45, he finds a man standing in the doorway of the stable. And he's surprised to see somebody there at night, uh, considering the time. It's nearly midnight. Um, but he's got a bit of a tart for a wife, and so he decides to hurry on home and uh, doesn't give it much thought after that. Um, there's also a lady called Eliza Kendall. Now, she lives opposite the stable, and she wakes up at about 3 o'clock in the morning in a dreadful fright. Uh, she thinks actually that she's going, she's being burgled and she sits up in bed and her heart is pounding and she's listening to see what noise disturbed her. And as she's listening, she can hear a kind of swilling or swishing noise, could even be a sawing noise. She, she doesn't know what it is, but whatever it is, it frightens her and it goes on for about 10 minutes and then it stops and then she listens some more, and then finally she hears uh, the stable door close, and then she hears footsteps walking away from the stable, and then she doesn't hear any more noise after that, and she finally goes back to bed. Um, another young girl of the same building, she notices early in the morning, um, the following day, and this is on the Saturday, that there's a light coming from the stable far too early that morning. Now, this is a young girl who sets her watch by the fact that when it when the stable is open and there is activity there, it must be 7 o'clock. But when she checks the watch, or the, or the clock, sorry, that's on the wall, she notices, in fact, that it's only 6 o'clock. And she notices that there is hammering and even somebody whistling coming from the stable opposite. All rather strange activity for a, for, for, for a, uh, a place to just house a horse that's going to be fast asleep during those hours right. and have nobody really needs to be in, the, in that stable at, at those hours. And another boy named John Thomas Dyer had a strange encounter with Willie Barrett. What was the, the nature of their interaction? Poor old John Thomas Dyer. Um, he ends up actually 
being a key witness for the prosecution. He knows Barrett. In fact, he's interacted with him several times on the street, and they live in close proximity to one another. So he is a man who sees Barrett quite a number of times, and, and he saw Barrett very early uh, on the morning in question when the body was discovered on that Saturday. And he sees Barrett actually carrying a heavy bundle of what he thinks are clothes, but he can see that the clothes really are quite heavy because Barrett is stooped over as he's carrying this bundle on outstretched arms, and he also seems in a bit of a hurry. But Dyer being Dyer, he goes over and he greets him as he usually does. And Barrett actually, instead of greeting him back as was the norm, he keeps his eyes to the pavement and has his head bowed and heads for the vicinity of Berwick Stables where the body was found less than an hour later. Now, unfortunately for the prosecution, although Dyer was adamant that it was Barrett, and he also notes that Barrett's trousers are dirty, and he says in his innocence they were covered in mud. Well, I think that you can replace mud with dried blood. But his witness account, unfortunately, was torn to shreds by Barrett's legal team. As poor old John Dyer really is a simpleton. And so when he comes to court, they mock him. They ridicule him in court. And they make him out to be somebody who's rather fanciful uh, in what he has seen. And so although he is a key witness for the prosecution, because of the fact that he has limited understanding or it is perceived that he has limited understanding of the situation. Um, his, uh, um, his part in, the, in, in, in trying to get Barrett convicted um, in part was successful, but on the other hand, uh, his witness account was really put in jeopardy. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, 
Available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So as you just mentioned, it wasn't long after John Thomas Dyer had this encounter with Willie Barrett that the discovery of Johnny Gill's body was made in Berwick Stables. Can you talk about Joseph Buck and how he stumbles on the murder scene? Yes, um, Joseph is is a young man. He doesn't live very far. In fact, he just lives in the one street over. His house backs onto this um, a very narrow alleyway, and in that alleyway are these um, buildings that are mainly used by um, people who, who use them as storerooms. They're not there um, opening them up on a regular basis. So it's an unused thoroughfare. And the only place that is used on a regular basis is, is the stable that belongs to Berwick. And um, inside is young Joseph, and he's busy mucking out the barn. And so he's mucking out when he sees a bundle of clothes that are sitting in a dark re- recess just outside the stables. And I suppose being a young lad and he's curious, he puts a pitchfork into the bundle to see what it is, and, and it meets with some resistance. So his curiosity is piqued. So he then goes and fetches a lantern, and he now tries to see exactly what's inside this bundle of clothing. And he then recoils in horror because there are the remains of poor old Johnny Gill. Let's talk a little bit about the crime scene. What did the police find when they arrived? Well, unfortunately, Johnny had been horribly mutilated. Um, It was not a pretty scene. Here you have, uh, you know, a lovely young child with so much to look forward to. And then suddenly you're opening up this bundle of clothing that actually it was his clothing that had been placed on top of his body. And once this was removed, he was lying underneath the clothing in a, in a terrible state. Um, whoever had murdered him had chopped off his limbs, had then packaged them along the torso. They had eviscerated him. Uh, they had cut one of his ears off. The other one was left untouched. Um, his intestines were draped around his shoulders. Uh, his lungs had been displaced, his boots had been shoved into his body cavity and and, and, and under the diaphragm. Um, Really, I mean, just dreadful when you think of anybody wanting to do this. The the most bizarre thing of all was that um, on further investigation, they discovered that his body had actually been drained of every single drop of blood which would have taken hours to do. Um, So just a completely bizarre case. But it was very interesting because, of course, it mimics uh, the um, murder of of Catherine Nadal's, which happened less, well, probably about a month just before that um, in London. Of course, this is where the connection between Johnny and Jack the Ripper then um, is made. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little more about that. People pretty quickly tried to connect the two together. 
because of the similar gruesomeness of the mutilations and the fact that Jack the Ripper had been in the news a bunch up to that point. So people were naturally making a connection between the two, right? Yes. I think, as I say, it was largely due to the way that Johnny had been killed. I have my own thoughts about this whole connection. And and as far as I'm concerned, I don't believe that there there is a connection. Um, My theory is that whoever killed Johnny Gill knew the area very, very well. He knew when the policeman was going to be passing by. Uh, He knew that... I, I, the, the, if you if you take the stable as the first crime scene, you had to have water present. Water was present. Lots of water was present. Lots of water was used to wash away all the evidence. And I think we'll come to that later. But to be honest, I, I think that the connection between Jack the Ripper and this murder is very, very slim. Right. So the body is taken to the morgue, and the coroner begins his examination. Can you talk about the conclusions the coroner drew after examining Johnny's body? Yes, um, I think that as if it wasn't enough, um, you know, Johnny, Johnny had suffered terrible mutilations, um, and poor old Thomas Gill, when he looks at his son, is absolutely devastated. Uh, this is the boy who's the apple of his eye. And he sees him lying on the, on, on the slab in the coroner's room and in and, and the morgue. And he's, he's just beside himself. Here's this big, burly cabman who is just devastated. And he's even more crushed when he hears from the coroner that not only is his son uh, has his son been murdered and, and mutilated in, in the most awful manner? But in fact, um, there was great suspicion that Johnny had been raped. Um, but it couldn't be proven because, unfortunately, the anus had been removed from the body and that part of the body was never found. I just have to pause for a moment and say that this must have been fascinating for you with with a background in forensics to get a chance to to gather all of these clues through your research and put the puzzle together. Well, I I wouldn't like to call myself an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I do have, you know, some 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 background in forensic and at forensics and it was extremely interesting for me and I really do believe that if Barrett had been tried today under um, different circumstances well, with the modern forensic science that we have, I mean, just using luminol, for example, which shows up blood stains no matter how much you wash them away, um, that would have been the end of Barrett as far as I'm concerned because I'm sure that you would have found all sorts of evidence that he tried so hard to wash away, but today he, he would have swung. I really do believe that. So the police set their sights on Willie Barrett, naturally, as he is the last person to see Johnny alive. And they go to his house to look for clues, don't they? Yes, I, I think Barrett is definitely a prime suspect. He, he is the person of interest. He was the last person um, to see Johnny Gill. Um, and and they do go to Barrett's home, uh, and they do try and find some evidence. And 
Remington, who had examined the body and had said, um, you know, look for a knife of a particular type. We're looking for a knife with a distinctive curve. We're looking for a knife with uh, that is, is smaller at the top than it is at the base. You know, all that kind of... They found a knife exactly like that in Barrett's kitchen. And so they take it off and there's great hope that they're going to find something. But unfortunately, they don't because it's it's been cleaned and then it's been reused since then. And, and so they found nothing. Um, they take away his trousers. Now, these are the dirty trousers that were full of mud, as Dyer points out. Um, and these trousers are so dirty that um, Barrett takes them home and washes them and um, cleans them. And they are still damp when they are found by the police. But he tells the police that, in fact, it had rained on uh, a Thursday, that Thursday when um, young Johnny was with them. And uh, the dampness is a result of them being washed, but also because he had to change um, and uh, because it was raining and he'd, he'd, you know, got soaked in the rain. So he always had an answer for every situation that was presented to him. So let's talk a bit about Chief Constable James Withers. Withers was confident enough with the evidence to bring Barrett in for questioning. How did that interrogation go, and how receptive was Barrett to Withers' questions? Well, you know, Barrett came in. He, he didn't resist arrest. Um, he said no problem. He would, he would go in and, and, and sit down. Um, and, and talk to, to, to Withers. Withers actually had made him wait um, before he was brought up, so he was in a holding cell um, while Withers went through some of the, um, the statements that he had already gathered or his men had gathered um, from people who had, um, had first um, uh, uh, interaction with the, with the body and where it was found and what they'd seen, etc., so Withers made him sweat it out a bit, but you would have thought that he would have been quite concerned during that time while he was sitting in the, in the holding cell. But on the contrary, uh, he was joking with the policeman. He was singing at one stage. Um, quite bizarre when you think that this is a child that Barrett knew um, who had taken, he had taken on his rounds that he was a neighbor's child. At no time would you expect a man who had um, had that close proximity and that close relationship with that child would behave in such a frivolous and disrespectful manner. Very odd. But anyway, um, I suppose people react differently to situations and this is the way Barrett reacted. Um, but I don't think that the interrogation was going particularly well for, for, for Withers. He was getting increasingly frustrated. But he did notice something, and that was that um, Barrett was yawning all the time throughout the interrogation, which struck him as odd. But when you know the history and you know that, in fact, Barrett had probably been up to, for two nights trying as well as working, trying to dispose of the body, drain it, and et cetera, et cetera, it's not surprising that he was yawning. However, 
to give credit where credit's due, Barrett also had a young baby and perhaps the baby was um, causing Barrett sleepless nights. We'll never know. Um, but that was something that was that was interesting. But it was during this interrogation that, in fact, um, Withers tricked Barrett really into changing his statement because he had somebody's statement on the desk and it was it was wasn't the person he was referring to. But he said, "I have a statement here that, in fact, um, tells me that young Johnny Gill was in your company." far longer than the time that you said that he had departed and left and gone home. And Barrett then started to backtrack and change his story to a certain extent. Interesting. Yeah. Very, very suspicious. Unfortunately, so much of the evidence was just circumstantial. The the police had a, a tough time with gathering real proof that Barrett was the murderer. W- would that be correct? Absolutely. They had so many pieces of evidence, but all circumstantial. Um, whoever had had uh, committed this crime was an ex- it had been extremely well planned, well thought out, and it was an organised crime. It wasn't one of those crimes that is committed in a frenzy, that is disorganised, where clues are left all over the place and the murderer flees. It was a person who had time to commit the murder, to know that they weren't going to be disturbed, time to clean up, time to wash, time to package the body, move it from one place to another, um, and really leave almost no clue behind. Although there were some clues, there were there were eyewitness accounts. If you look at the circumstantial evidence as it occurs chronologically, there is without doubt that Barrett was the murderer. But if you look at it from a conviction point of view, where you have to look at it and say with unequivocally, without a shadow of a doubt, this man committed the murder. It's difficult to do. And the prosecution had difficulty with that. Can you explain the prosecution's strategy in all of this? I mean, everything happened really quickly, first of all, let me say. In modern murder trials, we're used to weeks or even months of waiting. But this case quickly went before a magistrate in a, in a week, right? Well, less than that even. I mean, the body was found on Saturday morning at 7 o'clock. And by Friday, uh, sorry, by, by, by five o'clock on the same day, um, Barrett was standing in front of a magistrate um, and Withers was already, you know, reading him the riot act. So before Barrett had even time to catch his breath, he was arrested, his house was searched, um, and the magistrates were already hearing about the case. It moved extremely quickly. Um, from that point of view. And so definitely di- very different from, by comparison uh, to today's trials, yes, definitely. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's go to the trial itself. If we could talk about the prosecution and the defense, how did each side prepare their case? Um, it really depends on whose side you're on. I, the prosecution presented all the evidence they had, um, which wasn't a lot. Um, 
but their main witness, of course, was was John Thomas Dyer. And, and they tried so hard to convince the jury that the man they had arrested was the killer. Uh, and they presented everything in a logical and sequential manner, uh, along with all the other wit- eyewitness accounts. And, and, and Wither was, Withers was really confident of, of a conviction. Um, the only thing that um, was the sticking point, of course, was um, the simpleton, John Dyer and his account. And of course, um, the, the, the legal team that was representing Barrett just torn to him because it was really the only thing that they had um, to, to work on. And, and they, they tried quite convincingly to, to um, discredit him in the court in the courthouse and but you know despite that um i i think that that withers really was 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 i wasn't i'm not going to say grasping at straws but i i think if you had a, a different if it had time to build his case because if you look at the coroner's inquest it went better for him uh, because at that stage he had been uh, able to gather more witnesses and had spent more time building the case. I think this case, really, the magistrate's inquest fell apart because Withers was too keen to get a conviction without actually doing his homework properly. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet.
Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. How did Marianne and Thomas Gill do on the stand? Their, their testimony was quite emotional and convincing, wasn't it? They, they were convincing, but they were absolutely devastated. So the pair of them were absolute wrecks after the death of their son. Um, they weren't able to function. Marianne went into deep depression. Uh, you can just imagine on the Saturday morning seeing your son lying uh, in the mortuary and then that very afternoon having to stand up in court and, and, and um, answer questions. Uh, that a magistrate was pushing to you. And both of them had to be physically helped in and out of the court. Such was their grief. Uh, Mary Ann even had to be given a seat while, while she gave her tearful testimony. I think one is asking a huge amount from parents like this when, you, when they have just lost a child to, to even being able to think straight and to be coherent when you're, when, when you're trying to um, deal with the grief that they were trying to deal with at the time. Absolutely. So let's shift to Willie Barrett. He got lucky, didn't he? His, his employer really believed in his innocence and actually paid for his defense. I always found it odd that Wolfenden would have even offered to fund his defense unless he had something to do with what happened to Johnny Gill. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I don't think even today that anybody would pay for somebody else's defense, whether you worked for them or not. Um, and for a long time, Wolfenden was um, talking very loudly and vociferously about the fact that he was funding the defense and, oh, rah, rah, rah. And then he suddenly backtracked because it was becoming extremely expensive. Um, and Quite not too long down the track, about a couple of years later, he actually went bankrupt. But I don't think it was because he was paying for for the defense, because after a while he stopped paying for the defense, and then they had to start um, uh, defense-raising parties and, and, and a fund for, for Barrett to try and pay for his, his court case. Um, but yes, he did have all these big hitters that he managed to gather around him, Wolfenden being one, the, 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 the clergyman being the other, um, all vouching for his innocence. And I, I thought that whether he got lucky or whether he was uh, manipulating or orchestrating, you know, a, a show of support for these, for, for, for William Barrett, it was just all very odd. One of the most interesting questions for me in this whole thing, and it seems to be this way with a lot of these really sensational cases, 
is what did the public think about all of this? You, you have this added element of Jack the Ripper, but what was the, the gossip on the street? What were they saying in the newspapers? I mean, there was some pretty heavy fascination surrounding the murder, the investigation, and the trial, right? Oh, hugely so. It was a huge, huge deal. Um, as soon as the news broke out that a murder had taken place, people started running from every corner that they, you know, they could come from to try and, you know, get a rubbernecking, as we would normally say, you know, trying to get a glimpse of the body and all the gossip that was being passed around or what is happening. And and so it spilled over to the fact that people would then mill around the house of the gills trying to get a, uh, a sight of the parents, etc. Um, to such an extent, and of course, remembering that this murder happened over a weekend, um, the police had to call in extra forces to come and, and keep everybody at bay and to dis- disperse the crowds. Um, everybody had an opinion on the case, whether they were at a dinner party or whether they were sitting around a kitchen table. Um, Everybody had an opinion as to whether Willie Barrett was innocent or whether he was guilty. And there were two different camps, definitely, um, each supporting uh, the the belief that they were were convinced about. Um, Of course, newspapers in those days could be easily um, used as uh, voice pieces for for various camps. And um, uh, William Barrett's legal team made uh, quite good use of the newspapers, uh, discrediting Willis, um, talking about his incompetence, um, trying to persuade the public um, and to be convinced in Willie Barrett's innocence. Um, so there was a lot going on during this trial and, and the subsequent weeks that followed. Um, everybody spoke of nothing else. And I think because of the connection with Jack the Ripper, it made it even more appealing for the gossip mongers um, that there was something abuzz and sort of breaking the monotony of their miserable lives in Bradford, that something finally exciting was happening on their doorstep, even if it was um, a dread, such a dreadful murder case. So let's talk about the verdict in this case. Was Willie Barrett found guilty or not guilty, and how did the, the public react? Well, he was acquitted at the magistrate's inquest, and of course this caused quite a lot of jubilation for, for the majority of people, especially especially his supporters. Um uh, and, and of course, this uh, there was an eruption and, and a commotion in the streets as soon as they heard the news, and people were chasing after his cab as he made his way back to to Wolfenden's uh, dairy and all the rest of it. Um, but but um, you know it wasn't over. That was just the magistrate's inquest, and of course the the, the, the coroner's inquest um, followed later. And what was different about the coroner's inquest? Well, there were two things that were different. First of all, uh, this time they had more time to gather their, their witnesses and to, and to build the case. Uh, and it was, it was this time, in fact, that, um, that, that um, Dyer, Dyer was included. Um, the second one that was that um, when the coroner, Mr. Hutchinson, uh, gave his summation of the, of the trial, he was so meticulous in piecing 
the evidence together um, and presenting it in a, in a chronological uh, manner um, so that the jury, it, it, you know, could very easily form a picture of what had taken place. And all the circumstantial evidence that had been presented was, you know, quietly sewn together by Mr. Hutchinson as he spoke. And the jury voted 12 to 2 against Barrett. And and so therefore he was now, you know, up for willful murder for, for, for Johnny Gill. So he was basically able to establish a timeline. Yes. And this is what he did. And he did it so well that it was really convincing that William Barrett was definitely the perpetrator. So Barrett goes to jail. What jail did he go to and how long was he there for? Yes, he was, he was rearrested now and he was taken to Leeds because now he had to be, um, he had to, to go before the assizes and, and, and the grand jury. And so he was sent to Armley Jail, which is a, a grim place to be, um, uh, really and honestly. It was, it was not a pleasant place to go and certainly very different to the, the holding cell in the Bradford police station where he could laugh and joke and, and um, have a bit of a social with policemen. This, this is totally different. He's now in solitary confinement. He's uh, allowed time during the day to exercise in the yard, but then he's back inside his cell. Um, and he's there for nearly two months. Um, however, uh, he didn't really have... Uh, have it too tough because uh, instead of having to eat the slop that was presented to all the prisoners, he his friends actually um, paid a local woman to bring him his meals. So um, he had special treatment while he was there. Of course he did. Of course, this is William Barrett. Why would we expect anything else? Not long after, approximately two months, as you've already mentioned, his case goes before a judge again. This time, a grand jury. What was the, the nature of this trial, and what was the outcome? Um, to be honest, this, this, despite the fact that it was a grand jury, it was all a bit of a mess. Um, the whole thing just didn't go according to plan. Um, three of the witnesses didn't turn up for the trial, um, and then it was decided that even though they had not materialized, they weren't considered important enough to hold off taking a vote against Barrett. And, and so very, the case moved very quickly. I think it was about three days before it was all heard. And, and uh, a vote was given and Barrett was found not guilty. However, then it was a, another situation where it was not cut and dried because um, between the lawyers and the judges themselves, they didn't quite know what to do with Barrett now due to the fact that the coroner's inquest had found him guilty. But now in this in this inquest, they, they had found him not guilty. So they started arguing amongst themselves to try and find an answer. Clearly, you know, they were looking for precedence and, and what should we do? And, and in the end, it really came down to which side was more persuasive in their arguments. And unfortunately... Uh, it, it was really a case of, of persuasiveness, and, and um, Barrett's legal team won, and Barrett was allowed to go free. And that was the end of it. They never looked for another suspect. They never looked for another suspect. They couldn't now re-arrest um, uh, Barrett, so 
um, he was free to go. That was the end of end of it. Um, and nobody was ever charged for the murder of Johnny Gill after that. And what happened to Barrett? Oh, very interesting case story, really, because I mean, Barrett came home. He was seen as a hero. He was mobbed by people who were milling around the courthouse, but he managed to slip out a side door. Um, and then he disappeared over to, to Kildwick, where he came from, and um, went around in a cart with the clergyman and uh, Wolfenden and his my mother and his wife and his brothers, etc., etc. And, and they raised money for his defense, etc., etc. But it was it's an interesting story because if you look at historically, if you look at people who um, were born in the same era, um, if you were born a farm laborer, you died a farm laborer. But it wasn't so for Willie Barrett because I managed to trace him through the census records and to find out where he was and where he lived and how many more children he had, et cetera, et cetera. And it was interesting to see he almost had a meteoric rise. He he went from um, farm laborer to working at the dairy, uh, being a milkman. Uh, and then he went on becoming a farm owner and then farm, finally a farm bailiff. Um, so you go from lowly farm laborer to milkman to farm owner to bailiff during a period of history, really, that it's very unusual for anyone to change your profession in such a, a, a meteoric way. So I found that significantly interesting. You just wondered how much of that change was due to support that he had from outside forces, other people, and why. I, I just found that interesting. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about Jack the Ripper again. There are a couple of letters in this case that a number of people have attributed to Jack the Ripper. What are your feelings on this, and can you talk about this controversy? Sure. There were lots of letters. In fact, there was a woman in Bradford who was a milliner who came from Canada who um, was writing Jack the Ripper letters and actually was prosecuted by Withers and, and given quite a, a scolding by him for being a steady woman who would waste everybody's time um, pretending to be Jack the Ripper. But so many people did. I mean, even the newspaper reporters uh, admitted that they had penned certain letters um, supposedly by Jack the Ripper. So that these, these letters that appeared in the newspapers – you know, you cannot take them for being um, genuine, you know, the real deal, because there were so many fake letters. Um, but it is interesting that, you know, letters were sent saying, I ripped up a little boy in Bradford and, and that sort of thing. But um, there are many ripperologists who feel that the connection is very strong. Um, I know of, of a person at the moment who's writing a story actually uh, on, on Johnny Girl, so the second book coming out, uh, who is absolutely convinced that it is connected to Jack the Ripper. Um, I don't, uh, because so much uh, took place uh, with the murder that from the, from the proximity of where everything was located to 
the Bobby on the beat and his timings to the the stable being locked from the inside and the light source being brought there. If it was Jack the Ripper, how would he know the policeman's routine? How would he know where to move the body from one place? Why didn't he just leave it in the street like he did with all the other prostitutes? You know, Johnny was not a prostitute. He came from a good home. He was not a street child. He, it was not the modus operandi that, that, that uh, Jack the Ripper followed. Uh, it's completely different. When, when you have a serial killer, you have to look at the modus operandi because it is 99.9% the same. You know, it, it, they don't mix the, the, the way they kill. It, it is, it's a pattern. They leave patterns behind. They leave signature killings. They normally signature killings. So none of this occurred with Johnny Johnny's death. I saw it as a copycat murderer, a murder, sorry, a copycat murder to, to throw the suspicion off the person who had committed the crime. Barrett admits, which I don't think I even put in the book, but he admits that he had read quite a lot about um, the, 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 the murders that had taken place in London, that he had been affected by them. Well, you know, he could read. He wasn't an uneducated man. Um, and so he would have read a lot of newspaper reports. And there's nothing stopping him taking what he remembered from the last murder, which was Catherine Adal's where she had the intestines draped around her neck and then, you know, recreated that and then walk away and say, you know what? Oh, I think it was Jack the Ripper. Yeah, that makes good sense. So you mentioned earlier in the interview that you personally believe that Willie Barrett was the murderer of Johnny Gill. And in your book, you present two scenarios of how he might have done this. What are they and which one was more likely in your opinion? Actually, I'm not going to talk about those two because I just feel I've given so much away in this interview and I feel that if I give all that away, then nobody's going to read the book. So I'm going to say, well, you know what? You're going to have to read the book and come to your own conclusions on that. But do did I set out to accuse William Barrett? I didn't. Honestly, when I first started off researching this, I, it could have gone one way or the other. Um, I started off believing his innocence. Halfway through the, the research, I started wavering. And I kept on thinking, my goodness, did he or didn't he? Surely not. Um, and then when I'd finished my research, I was absolutely convinced that he was not as innocent as he was making himself out to be. Um, as I said you know, earlier, had, we, had he been tried... Um, with the under and modern day conditions with the forensic science that we have now, um, I do believe that the, the 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 situation, the outcome, would have been far different to what it was when he was finally released and um, as seen as innocent. So, what do you have going on now? Are you working on anything new? Well, I am working on something new, actually, um, but it's not working out as planned for a number of reasons. Um, I started re-examining the case of Madeline Smith, 
which is a very famous Scottish uh, murder case that uh, took place in 1857 when she was, um, she's, she's a young girl, she's a pretty girl, <clears throat> she comes from a very well-to-do uh, Scottish family, her father is an architect, uh, and then she meets this man called Pierre L'Angelier, who is much older than her, is very controlling, and he ends up dead. And so she's accused of poisoning him because he becomes a little bit of a nuisance in her life. But um, I'm re-examining the case and I'm, I'm, I'm having a look at that and having a lot of fun with it, um, if you can have fun with a murder story. But... Um, Really, honestly, at the moment, my, my, my time has been taken up with other things. And my current book has been, unfortunately, put on, on the back burner for a while. Um, I run a Facebook group for authors that is 1,200 strong, and so I'm kept rather busy with that. I've also recently become the co-founder of a new website for indie authors called One Stop Fiction. Um, and this has been a major, major undertaking, an exciting one, but a major undertaking. And it's a website where authors can upload their books and for free across all selling platforms and and have a profile page, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a website I'm I'm rather proud of. We worked really hard to get it off the ground and, and you know, authors are not wealthy people and so we, we offer them a chance to 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 put up as much as, as possible for free and, and, and to be seen and to get better visibility and, and discoverability. So so that's what I've been working on at the moment. So unfortunately, Madeline Smith and her lover will have to take um, a, a back seat. But I'm hoping to actually finish that probably around about the summer of next year. Excellent. So for people interested in buying your book, where can they go get it? Okay. Um, first of all, you can visit my website at katherinemcmaster.com. Um, I'm also on Amazon under the same name, McMaster's a family name, of course, not my married name, but uh, it is a name I, I write under. And if you can't remember McMaster, of course, you can always search for Who Killed Little Johnny Gill and it'll come up. Um, if you would like to read more about me and see some interviews of other indie authors, of course, don't forget One Stop Fiction. We are an up and coming website and uh, we're holding an, a, a competition at the moment uh, running from September right through to December, where you can win yourself an e-reader, Kindle e-reader of white paper. So, you know, pop into the website and uh, and and uh, hopefully, you know, come and read some of the wonderful authors that we have there as well. Again, it's been a great pleasure, and thank you so much for your time. Many thanks. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher 
and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.